Chapter Eleven of In Kent with Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. In Kent with Charles Dickens by Thomas Frost. Chapter Eleven. Fortified for a day's walking by a substantial breakfast at the clean and comfortable hostelry of the White Horse, therein following the much to be commended example of Captain Dugald Dalgetty. I started for Ramsgate about nine o'clock on the following morning, intending to break the journey at Sandwich. Leaving the clean and quiet little town at the northern extremity of the Esplanade, and passing wave-washed Sandown Castle on the right, I struck into an ill-defined track across the dunes or sand-hills which I had followed to Sandwich on a former visit to Deal several years previously. This devious and solitary track, where nothing is heard but the tinkle of sheep-bells, after the rambler, as it recedes from the beach, ceases to hear the monotonous and melancholy sweep of the sea upon the shingle, meanders between the coast and the highway from Deal to Sandwich, a distance of six miles, over an undulating tract of sand, precisely similar to that of the beach, and only prevented from drifting away by the sparse herbage that covers it. I could not avoid the reflection, as I followed the track across this sandy waste, that the Goodwin sands only require to become elevated a few feet higher to present a perfectly similar appearance. There seems no reason why those famous sands, which have been upheaved within the last four centuries, should not some day become a sheep pasture and a rabbit warren like these neighbouring sand-hills. The path winds in a devious manner between the sandy hillocks and ridges, which, with the little hollows between them, are scantily clothed with a coarse grass, with here and there a patch of a low-growing shrub, the roots of which serve in some degree to hold together the loose soil. Some of these hollows are deep enough to prevent the rambler from seeing beyond the hillocks between which he is threading his way and even on the less broken portions of the desolate tract nothing else meets the eye on either hand except the two black sheds on the right, each covering a gun, and constituting what are called Battery number 1 and Battery number 2. Kentish sheep, somewhat longer-legged than the Southdown breed, and differing from them in having white faces, are scattered over the waste, and wild rabbits, hundreds of whose burrows may be seen, scamper in and out among the hillocks and hollows. About half-way between Deal and Sandwich, the rambler comes upon what looks like an ordinary milestone, standing on the left of the track most frequently used. Milestones are not placed on footpaths, however, and the singularity prompts a glance at the face of the stone, an inscription on which informs the wayfarer that there— one evening towards the close of the last century, Mary Bax was outraged and murdered by Martin Lander, a soldier of the German Legion, who suffered the penalty of death for the crime at Maidstone. The unfortunate young woman whose life-blood was shed on this lonely spot was a dressmaker at Deal, and on the evening of the crime was returning to that town from Sandwich. Failing to reach her home, her father sought her by the way she was expected to come, which is shorter than the high road, 
and was horrified by the discovery of her corpse, dabbled with blood, lying upon the path, at the spot now marked by this rude monument. Suspicion fell upon the soldier, who, by a long train of circumstantial evidence, was convicted of the crime, for which he suffered the extreme penalty of the law, as the inscription on the stone records. The path across the sand-hills is continued through fields and market-gardens to a lane parallel to the stour, on reaching which the rambler turns to the left, and soon finds himself in the quaint old town of Sandwich. The ancient churches, crooked streets, and high, steep gables of which must look nearly the same as they did a century or two ago. As I intended to devote a portion of the day to a visit to the ruins of Richborough, I made no longer stay in the town, however, than was required for drinking a glass of ale, and walking through the irregular streets, in the direction of the road leading to Canterbury. I had been desirous to explore these ruins on a former occasion, when I had walked from Ramsgate to Deal, but, though visible from the road, they cannot be reached from it without a boat, owing to the intervention of the Stour, which flows in such a remarkable curve as to convert into a peninsula the tract intersected by the road between Sandwich and the original haven, where the river flows into Pegwell Bay. Just out of the town, on the road to Canterbury, there is a lane on the right, which, passing under the railway from Minster Junction to Sandwich and Deal, enables the ruins to be reached on their western side, and then intersects the marshes bordering the river. Though the lowness of the remaining portion of the wall overlooking the stour causes these ruins to appear almost too inconsiderable for notice, they have a peculiar interest for students of history and persons archaeologically disposed, as the most ancient remains of the kind in the kingdom. Richborough, under its ancient name of Rutupia, is supposed to have been the first military station established by the Romans in this country, and though archaeological authorities differ very much as to the site of Rutupia, which Ptolemy calls one of the three principal cities of the Cantii, there is no doubt of its extreme antiquity. The remains of the ancient castle cover about six acres, and occupy a slight elevation above the surrounding country, which presents a dead level from the Sandwich Flats to Ash Marsh. The walls are ten or eleven feet thick, but the portions which remain are, in most places, of inconsiderable height, little more than the foundations being visible at some points, and the crumbling masonry rising in others to the height of six or eight feet only. The greatest elevation is on the north, where the wall rises to twenty-two feet. The ruins are covered everywhere with ivy, but where the masonry can be seen, layers of Roman bricks can be seen between the courses of rough stone. Some remains of a Roman amphitheatre are said to have been visible fifty years ago in the fields, about five hundred yards southwest from the ruins of the castle, but they no longer exist, and the plough has obliterated every trace of them. Camden states that the streets of a town could be traced in his time in the neighbouring fields but green pastures and brown arable land, over which corn waves in the summer, now cover all of Richborough that is not enclosed with the crumbling and ivy-mantled walls of the ruined castle. 
the site appears to have been deserted by the sea, which at one time washed its walls, during the fifth century, sandwich not being mentioned in old records until a century later. Retracing my steps along the lane, my attention was arrested, when near Sandwich, by an old house, standing back from the road, and partially covered with ivy. Though apparently occupied, it had a sombre and neglected aspect, the stone steps before the front door being green, and seeming to be encrusted in places with moss, while grass grew in the gravel paths, and docks and thistles flourished among the tangled shrubs and degenerated flowers. As I looked, a feeling grew in my mind that I had seen the house before, though I knew that I had never seen the place until that day. As I walked into the town, and while dining at an inn on the left-hand side of the main street from the market-place to the Strand Gate, I strove to remember where I had seen a house like the one which had so impressed me with its melancholy and neglected aspect. It was not until I was again upon the road, however, that I remembered having seen such a house in a remarkable dream, which I have here cast into the form of a story, without the addition or alteration of a single incident. A NIGHT IN A HAUNTED HOUSE The afterglow of a vivid sunset was tinging the summer clouds with the richest rose hues, and giving a rubescent tinge and lustre to the westward windows of distant farmhouses and cottages, as I tramped along a picturesque bit of road, such as there are many of in Kent and Surrey, which wind in and out and up and down among the hills, with oaks and beeches overhanging them, with honeysuckle and wild rose perfuming the air, and ferns and foxglove growing upon the banks. I was descending a rather steep hill, through the hollow at the bottom of which a splashing stream was crossed by a narrow bridge, when a curve of the road brought into view on the right an old ivy-clad house, standing back among older trees, by which it was partially concealed from view. Had the night been farther advanced, and lights been gleaming through the closed curtains and blinds, it would have been simply picturesque, but seen through the semi-obscurity which the surrounding trees made of the twilight, it had a sombre and neglected aspect, the stone steps before the front door being green, and seeming to be partially encrusted with moss, while grass grew in the gravel paths, and docks and thistles flourished among the tangled shrubs and degenerated flowers of a long untended garden. The house looked as if it had been given up to decay, and the grounds surrounding it as if they had reverted to nature for more than a generation. Weaving a web of fancy about the old house, in which a ghost and a chancery suit mingled, I descended the hill, crossed the little bridge at the bottom, and found on one side of the road a finger-post, and on the other a low-roofed hostelry, with a signpost and a horse-trough before it. Having ascertained that I could be accommodated with a bed and breakfast, I ordered some refreshment, and sat down in the sanded parlour, around the smoke-darkened walls of which old prints in black frames alternated with stuffed owls and hawks, 
jays, cuckoos, and squirrels. "'Does anyone live in the old house up the hill?' I inquired of my hostess when she brought in the refreshment I had ordered. "'No, sir,' she replied. "'There hasn't been anyone living there for many a year.' "'What is the reason for its being allowed to be in that neglected condition?' I asked. "'Well, it is a strange story what they tell about it,' the woman returned with evident hesitation. "'Nobody knows the rights, aren't for it has been like that, as you see it now, longer than anybody in the neighbourhood can remember. "'Haunted, I suppose,' I said with a smile. "'Well, they do say that strange things have been seen and heard by them as have passed the place late at night,' replied the woman. "'But it weren't for that that the place was shut up and deserted, if there's any truth in the story that is told about it.' "'What is the story?' I inquired with a feeling of interest which was increased by the little I had already heard. "'It is a wild and improbable story, sir,' said my hostess, hesitating to begin for a few moments, "'and nobody knows now whether there is any truth in it, though why, if there isn't, the place should have been left to go to rack and ruin like that I can't imagine. As I heard the story when I was a girl, there was an old lady lived there ever so many years ago, who directed by her will that she shouldn't be buried, but left on the bed as she died, and that everything in the house should be left just as it was, and the house shut up for a hundred years. "'A hundred years!' I exclaimed, my surprise and curiosity equally excited by that singular testamentary instruction. "'The story goes,' continued my hostess, that she believed she should come to life again at the end of that time, and that was why she wouldn't be buried or even put in a coffin. "'And how long ago is that eccentric old lady supposed to have died?' I inquired, more and more interested in the story. "'It must be nearly a hundred years now,' replied the narratress. It is nearly thirty years since I heard the story from a great-aunt, who was then nigh seventy, and she had lived in this neighbourhood all her life, and said the house had been shut up, and that story told about it longer than she could remember. This strange story excited a desire to explore the old house, which grew stronger every moment that I sat there looking at the ancient prints and the stuffed animals through the wreaths of blue smoke, that curled upward from the bowl of my pipe. When I retired to rest, I drew aside the curtain of my chamber window, and looked across the orchard towards the brow of the hill, where the haunted house was then scarcely distinguishable in the darkness from the trees which surrounded it. To my surprise, a light glimmered from an upper window, shining through the foliage like a star. What hand could have lighted it? If I had known that the hundred years during which the old lady's eccentric spirit had been separated from its mortal abode, terminated that night, I think I should have been sceptical as to her having just experienced her expected resurrection, and lighted a candle to see how the old place looked. But I had given no credence to the story not being able to conceive the probability of any executors or trustees being insane enough to allow a house to be shut up with a corpse in it for a hundred years. 
Still, the appearance of a light at what, for a secluded little hamlet, was a late hour, in an uninhabited house, was more than a little remarkable. While I was wondering at it, however, it disappeared, and the darkness without was only relieved by a few twinkling stars. I fell asleep while thinking of what I had heard and seen, and my first thought on waking, when the grey light was stealing over the earth, was of the haunted house on the hill. I resolved to visit it, and if I could obtain an entrance, to satisfy myself of the truth of what I had heard from my hostess. I dressed at once, therefore, descended the stairs very quietly, and let myself out. Footnote. In the dream there was an abrupt shifting of the scene from the inn parlour to the interior of the haunted house, but as the time had changed from evening twilight to daylight, or morning twilight, the story requires the intervention of a knight to be supposed. End of footnote. Crossing the bridge, I ascended the hill, and entered the neglected garden of the haunted house. A broken pane of glass afforded the means of opening a window in the rear of the house, and in another moment I had dropped into what seemed to have been the dining-room. A cloud of dust was raised by the moving of the curtains, and the light which I let in by drawing them back showed a thick film of dust upon every object in the room. I stood still a few moments, looking around upon the heavy old-fashioned furniture, which seemed in some degree to corroborate the story which I had heard at the inn. The carpet was worm-eaten, and every corner had its cobweb, or rather its half-dozen cobwebs, the different degrees in which dust had settled upon them, marking their various periods of construction. Silence reigned throughout the house, as I listened at the foot of the stairs for a few moments before I began to ascend them. Why did I listen? What did I expect to hear in a house that had not had a human inhabitant for a century? I could find no answer to this query, yet the recollection of the light which I had seen on the preceding night had prepared my mind in some degree for a startling discovery. I ascended the stairs slowly and with furtive tread, as if I feared to alarm a sleeping household. On the landing I paused. I had heard a sound, the first not caused by myself since I had been in the house. A rustling sound, but whether within or without I was uncertain. It might have been the trailing ivy flapping against a window in the gentle breeze. Two doors opened on this landing. One was closed, the other was opened about an inch. Advancing, I knew not why, with the same furtive tread that I had ascended the stairs, I peered into the room. My eyes dilated widely, and for a few moments my feet seemed rooted to the spot by what I saw. The narrow view just took in the head of a large, massive, old-fashioned bedstead, upon which the outlines of a human figure could be discerned beneath a white covering. Was the strange story which I had heard at the inn a verity, then? It seemed so. 
there was no sign of the presence of a living human being in the room. Dust hung upon the white curtains, and lay thick upon the dressing-table and the washstand, as I saw when I pushed the door open wide enough to enter and look around. As I did so, I observed a movement of an arm of the figure beneath the counterpane, which, to my surprise and horror, was immediately afterwards thrown back, disclosing the grey locks and wrinkled yellowish-white countenance of an old woman. Was I about to witness the resurrection of the eccentric old lady, who had been dead a hundred years? Bewildered by an event so contrary alike to experience and belief, I stood speechless and motionless, awaiting the next stage of the marvellous resuscitation. I had not many moments to wait. The old woman's eyelids unclosed, and a pair of cold grey eyes regarded me with an expression of surprise as she raised herself to a sitting position and put back the tangled grey locks from her wrinkled and parchment-like forehead with a hand that might have been a portion of the anatomy of an Egyptian mummy. "'I don't know whether I be a-doing wrong,' said she, "'but I've slept in this house many a night when I've come this way, and never saw a living soul in it before.' "'Who are you?' I asked wonderingly, and yet with some perception of a ludicrous solution of the awful mystery dawning upon my mind. "'A poor old woman as sells threads and tapes,' she rejoined. "'What's the time, master?' I hurried from the room without replying, and left the house as quickly as I could, scarcely knowing whether I was pleased or not with the farcical manner in which so sensational an adventure had terminated. The resemblance of the old house near Sandwich to the haunted mansion of my dream must, I suppose, be regarded as a simple coincidence. The story of an old woman who expected her resurrection a century after death had, however, long been known to me, though in a somewhat different form to that which it assumed in my dream. I frequently heard, when a boy, of a long-deceased old woman called Mother Hotwater, as the name used to be pronounced, who had, at some period of the last century, been the hostess of the George, an ancient inn at Croydon, and who was said to have predicted her resurrection a hundred years after her decease. The name of this old woman was probably Atwater, which may be found in the parish registers, and upon one of the tokens figured by Garrow and Steinman in their histories of the town. The conversion of A into O in proper names being of frequent occurrence in the records of the topographical nomenclature of Surrey. Croydon, having formerly been called Craydon, Dorking, Darking, and Tolworth, a hamlet of the parish of Longditton, Talworth. The old woman seems to have been addicted to the practice of magic, or to have maintained what in Scotch superstition is called a brownie, for there is a tradition that there was a closet in the house into which the dirty plates and dishes used to be put, and from which they were brought out clean, without human hands being concerned in the process. And it used to be a common saying of servants and workwomen in the town fifty years ago, 
I wish we had Mother Hopwater's closet. The George Inn stood at the corner of High Street and George Street, and is said to have had an ill repute in its latter years, owing to the mysterious disappearance from time to time of peddlers and other travellers who were supposed to have lodged at the house and were never seen afterwards. The name of the house was preserved to a period within my own recollection in the adjacent George Yard, but the house is now, and has been as long as I can remember, called Albion House, and at the earliest date to which my memory extends was occupied by a draper named Stapleton, one of whose daughters informed a cousin of my own, daughter of the late John Skelton Chapman, then master of Archbishop Whitgift's school in that town, that there was a closet in the house, the door of which was nailed up, and which had never been opened within her recollection. A vague suspicion seems to have been entertained that this closet contained the skeletons of men who had been murdered in the house in the olden time. From this digression and the hostelry of my dream, let me return to the inn at Sandwich at which I dined, and from which I started an hour afterwards for Ramsgate. Leaving the ancient town by the Strand Gate, and crossing the swivel bridge which there spans the Stour, looking like the drawbridge of some fortress of the feudal age, I proceeded northward over a broad flat the scanty salt-marsh vegetation of which struggles for existence with deposits of cockle-shells and wave-worn pebbles. The river was on my right and my left at the same time, on the former side flowing northward, on the latter where it laved the ivy-clad walls of Richborough Castle running southward. Looking seaward, I was surprised by the sight of a small steamer, apparently paddling over the marshes, the river not being visible, and its eccentric windings causing the vessel to appear where the presence of deep water would otherwise have been unsuspected. The steamer, as I afterwards learned, belonged to the owners of some neighbouring salt works. That these flats were once covered by the sea is evident from the great difference of depth between the channel made by the current of the Stour and the adjoining waters of Pegwell Bay, the former being the arm of the sea which formerly separated Thanet from the mainland, and into which the Stour then flowed at Stourmouth. On both sides of this channel the water is so shallow that it may be waded across at low water, when, indeed, scores of shrimpers may be seen, immersed to their knees, at long distances from the cliff on which the village of Pegwell is perched. Ignorance of the existence of this channel was the cause, some years ago, of a fatal and melancholy disaster. Two young men, who attempted to wade across the bay as a short route from Deal to Ramsgate, were plunged suddenly into deep water, and being unable to swim, were both drowned. If the facts were not attested by existing records, it would be difficult to believe that Sandwich was once a great naval and commercial port, and that Richborough Castle was formerly close to the sea. The records referred to show, however, that a broad channel once flowed from Reculver to Sandwich, and that the mouth of the Stour was then at Stourmouth, about four miles and a half, in a north-westerly direction, from the point at which it now flows into Pegwell Bay. 
The breadth of this channel varied from a mile and a half to four miles, with sufficient depth of water for the largest vessels of that early period, when it was the accustomed route between London and the northern ports of France. The rising of the land, and the consequent diminution of the breadth and depth of this channel, were probably going on long before the change attracted much attention, but they had become visible in Bede's time. The sea had receded between Deal and Ramsgate, and the proprietors of the adjacent lands were taking measures to secure the flats from which it had retired from being again overflowed. By imperceptible degrees, century after century, the channel between Reculver and Stourmouth became choked, the Stour was observed to be less rapid. A creek which ran up to Ebbsfleet, which had been a convenient and much-used landing place, became dry, and from that place to Sandwich, the Stour, which had usurped the place of the southern portion of the former channel, meandered sluggishly through a broad tract of marsh where once the sea had been. Near the solitary public house called the Sportsman, where a pleasantly shaded road descends on the left from the village of Minster, with the branches of old trees forming an arch of verdure, most refreshing to the eye after a long walk in the glare of the sun, I left the road and struck into a footpath through the fields on the right. Here the cliff begins to rise out of the shell-strewn flats, at first showing reddish clay, through which the chalk rises, however, before Pegwell is reached. Along the edge of this cliff the path runs, until the coastguard station at Pegwell is reached, where the shrimpers ascend from the beach by means of a vertical ladder constructed against the face of the cliff, and a bronze-visaged seaman paces the point monotonously, with a telescope under his arm. End of chapter 11